Hello, and welcome to Hugenhoff Podcast, episode 137. Today, we're going to continue reading the Eddas, but before we do that, I will get through the station news. If you want to check out my website, feel free to do so. That's at hugenhoff.org, H-U-G-I-N-H-O-F.org. There you can subscribe to the RSS and all that stuff. Also, if you have not read Steve's books, you should. Just search Amazon Stephen Oaks, or even better, go to the show notes and there's a direct link. He also writes a blog, I think, and that's also in the show notes and probably some other stuff. So go there, check it out. Oh, you can read my book, Lightbringer by Byron Rogers at Amazon.com. So I think that's it. Let's jump straight in today's topic because it's a good one. We're going to continue reading the Eddas. And of course, this is the Everyman Edda by Snorri Sturluson, which I've gone over before. And this is the uh, oh, it's the translation by. Anyway, sorry. Um, yeah, it's the translation by Anthony Falks. That's who it is. All right, so let's see where we were last time. Let's see. Hod is the name of one Oz. He is blind. Only too strong is he. And the gods would prefer that this Oz did not need to be named. For the work of his hands will long be kept in minds among gods and men. Oh yeah, I think we talked about this. How um, Hod is the god that killed Baldur. I hesitate to say that because it was all set up by Loki. Loki was jealous of Balder, and he found out that the mistletoe hadn't had not promised to not harm him, and then kind of got Hod to throw the actual dart. So, really, Loki orchestrated it and probably had more responsibility, and he does get punished for that later. But Hod was also part of it because even though he was blind and Loki guided his hand he he did actually do the action and you could argue that it was kind of through negligence that he did it like he should you could argue that maybe you should he should have known better I don't know it's it's hard to make that argument but I do think there's a lesson for us that you know if somebody tells you to do something really think about why they're telling you to do that um this is a case we're not going to come up in real life very often. It's like, if anybody tells you to throw a dart at a god because they're immortal, think about it real hard. But if somebody, in all seriousness, if somebody tells you to do something, really think about it. What is their motivation? Because even though maybe it wasn't your intention, your intent to do harm, if you did do harm, the harm is still done. And, you know, if it's through some amount of negligence, on your part, you will be held responsible. And I guess that's what's really important here. You will be held responsible for what you do, even if it wasn't your intent. And I think from an ethical perspective, it's a little more nuanced. Like if you completely, if you hurt someone and it is completely on accident and there's nothing you could have done to avoid it, I don't think you're morally responsible. So that would be a situation in in which you're driving a car and someone jumps in front of your car. I don't think you're morally responsible for that. I don't think you're legally responsible for it either. Um, Or in this case, it would be if 
Loki grabbed Hod's hand and put the dart in it and then, you know, used his hand to make it look like Hod to make Hod throw it. But just by purely overpowering him, then I don't think Hod would have gotten in trouble for that. But in a situation where it's not your intention, but it's still your fault, might be a situation of you're driving your car going 50 miles an hour in a uh, school zone that's, you know, 25 miles per hour, and and it's right when school's coming out, the lights are flashing, you're like, ah, I'm in a hurry, I'm not slowing down. And then a kid runs out in, your, in front of you, and then you hit them. Well, that kind of is your fault because it was through your, even though it wasn't your intention, it was through your negligence that the kid got hurt. And that's more what happens here. Hot's probably a little bummed that he can't be part of the fun. And Loki's like, oh, here's this spear I just conveniently have. Why don't you join in the festivities and throw it at him? And Hod was, you know, maybe not as paranoid about that as he should have been. So um, assigning blame is when you do not intend to hurt someone, I think is something that's really tricky to do. And I do not envy prosecution or defense attorneys who have to do that because that's really that's really difficult. Like those examples I gave, real life examples are pretty clear, but there's less clear examples. What if you're, what if you're driving through a school zone, going the 25 mile posted speed zone, um, looking at your phone and you hit a kid because you were distracted. I mean, I think that's still your fault. But what if you're not looking at your phone, but maybe you're not paying as close attention as you should be? What if you just, you know, what if you were daydreaming? Is it your fault? Those are the questions where it gets really tricky. Like, when does it become your fault and not become your fault? Anyway, so I think the takeaway here is... Um, you have to be really careful what you do because ultimately you're going to be responsible for your actions. All right, so going on, Vitter is the name of the one, the silent as. He has a thick shoe. He is almost equal in strength to Thor. He is the source of great support to the gods in all dangers. Ali or Vali is the name of the one, the son of Odin and Rhine. He is bold in battles and a very good shot. Ul is the name of one, son of Sif, stepson of Thor. He is such a good archer and skier that no one can compete with him. He is also beautiful in appearance and has a warrior's accomplishments. He is a good one to pray to in single combat. Now I remember where we were. This is just kind of going over some of the gods and, you know, maybe what you pray for them for. For Seti is the name of the son of Baldur and Nana and Nana Nep's daughter. Well, let me read that again. Forseti is the son of Baldur and Nana Nep's daughter. He has a hall in heavens called Glitnir, and whoever comes to him with difficult legal disputes, they all leave with their differences settled. Settled. It is the best place of judgment among the gods and men. Thus it says here, there is a hall called Glitnir. It is held up by golden pillars and likewise roofed with silver. Therefore, Seti dwells most days and settles all disputes. For Seti is a good god that I feel like maybe we should talk about more people in general should talk about more. You usually bring up Tyr, who's a god of justice, but for Seti's kind of a god of justice as well, but a different kind of justice. I've always imagined it like 
here is the god of you know going out there and exacting your justice in the world sort of like what a police officer or even soldier would do you know the police officers like on the front lines make <clears throat> excuse me making sure <coughs> excuse me making sure the streets are safe and that's a that's a really important role to play in society like being out there um making sure people aren't getting hurt. But for Seti is more a god of like judges. You know, when these disputes happen, then sometimes people still don't agree and they have to be brought before a judge and the judge has to decide how to deal with them fairly. So so um, I personally always thought that Tyr was sort of the law side of it and for Seti was more the justice side of it. When you think of a show like Law and Order, we're like, um, you know, the police or detectives will go out and find out what happened and quote unquote catch the bad guy, but then, and that's the tier aspect of things, but then you have to bring them back to a court of law where the lawyers will argue and you'll get a fair trial one way or the other, and that's more the realm of Forseti. So, like, he would be a god appropriate to lawyers. Um, Whereas Tyr would maybe be a god appropriate to police officers. And that, like, that's only one way to look at it, but that's kind of how I see it and describe it. So that one is all that one is also reckoned among the Aesir, whom some call the Aesir's culminator and or and originator of deceits and the disgrace of all gods and men. His name is Loki or Lopt, son of the giant Farbati. Lofi or Nol is his mother. Belsta and Helbindi are his brothers. Loki, Loki is pleasing and handsome in appearance, evil in character, very capricious in behavior. He possessed to a greater degree than others the kind of learning that is called cunning and tricks for every purpose. He was always getting the Aesir into, into a complete fix and often got them out of it by trickery. Signy is the name of his wife, Nari or Narfi, their sons, and Loki had other offspring too. There was a giantess called Angaborda in Giantland. With her, Loki had three children. One was Fenris Wolf, the second Aramgonda, i.e. the Midgard Serpent, the third is Hal. And when the gods realized that these three siblings were being brought up in Giantland, and when the gods traced prophecies stating from these siblings great mischief and disaster would arise for them, then they all felt then they all felt evil was to be expected from them. To begin with, because of their mother's nature, but still worse, because of their father's. Alright, I think everybody who knows anything about Norse mythology knows that Loki is the enemy of the gods. Um Again, he started as an ally of the gods and worked with the gods. And, you know, it mentions here lots of stories where he helped and helped um, get the gods out of, you know, troublesome situations. Also, he usually got them in it in the first place, but he did not start as like the quote unquote evil god. That was just always bad. It's not in his nature to be evil so much as it's in his nature to be mischievous and a little cunning. Um... But in time, you know, things happened and 
gods are not just archetypes. They're also, you know, living entities that have their own stories and make decisions and all of this other stuff. And Loki obviously made some pretty bad decisions and is now the enemy of the gods. Um, and I think, like, there's a lot of things that you could point to where it's like maybe Loki is not making a good decision here or here. But the real the real one that in my mind sealed his fate is his actions in killing Balder. It was first him that orchestrated to get Balder killed in the first place, which, you know, by itself could would probably be enough to make him an enemy of the gods, but then to make things worse, when when they went down and asked Hell to release him, Balder that is, she said she would as long as everyone cried for Balder. And there was one giantess who refused to weep for Balder, and that was Loki in disguise. So not only did he kill him, he also stopped him from coming back to life, which is probably because he was jealous of him. Because Balder was the most beautiful fair of the gods. And, like, that's obviously not okay. I feel like that, the killing of Balder is like the final thing that made it be the case that Loki was an enemy of the gods. Now, you could say, chronologically, after that happened, then came the flighting of Loki, which is when Loki came to the gods. The gods were having a feast. The Loki burst in and basically insulted all of the gods, which was obviously not nice and very impolite because he didn't follow all the protocols you're supposed to follow. And you could say that's the last bad thing he did before the gods were fed up and punished him. And that is true, but I don't think the flighting of Loki would be enough to make Loki the enemy of the gods if it wasn't for the fact he just killed Balder. And even if he didn't do that, I don't think the gods would have forgiven him. I think that the slaying of Balder is the thing that made Loki an enemy of the gods. I also don't think that's controversial, but who knows, maybe it is. Um, okay, so back here. Then all father then all father wait. Then all father sent the gods to get the children and bring them to him. And when they came to him, they threw the serpent into the deep sea, which lies round all lands. And this serpent grew so that it lies in the midst of the ocean, encircling all lands, and bites its own tail. Bites on its own tail. Hell he threw into Niflheim, and gave her authority over nine worlds. And that she has to administer board and lodging to those sent to her. And that is those who die of sickness or old age. She has great mansions there, and her walls are exceptionally high, and the great gates great. Her hall is called Elinder, her dish hunger, her knife famine. The servant Ginglati, serving main Ginglot, her threshold where you enter, stumbling block, her bed sick bed, her curtains gleaming blade. She is half black and half flesh collared. Thus she is easily recognized and rather downcast and fierce looking. And I think hell comes up in popular culture a lot. Famously, the person who's like half a relatively healthy looking woman, like split down the middle, half a relatively sick looking woman. And here it's described as the other half black, though usually in popular culture, I think you see like the other half, like 
a skeleton, which is sort of what it's getting at. You know, she's got aspects of death and life, both. Um, it also describes hell here a little bit, and you can see that it's not really a place you're going for. It's not like you're wanting to get into hell because, uh, I mean, her. It, it, it mentions famine and hunger. It's just not overly an overly happy place. I don't think hell is necessarily filled with only evil, terrible people, nor is it the worst place you can go. There's Nifle Hell, which is far worse, and that's where, you know, like murderers and seducers of other men's wives go. It's like the quote-unquote bad place. It's the worst place that you can go. But also, you're not really going to a hell. In my mind, and I mean here, it says it's the people who die of old age or sickness. This is obviously very influenced by the time when it was written, when, you know, you don't want the quote-unquote best way to die is to, you know, go out in battle or glory, and that's how you get to uh, Valhalla. Um, so, so that's part of it. But also when we say, like, how do you end up deciding which afterlife you go to? First of all, I mean, we don't know, really. But I think here it's saying that one way to get to hell is to, you know, die of old age or sickness. I don't personally think everybody who dies of old age or sickness goes to hell. I think hell is the quote-unquote normal afterlife. It's like the boring one if you never really did all that much with your life you just sort of existed you go to hell where you just kind of keep existing you know in your life you may have been relatively dissatisfied but not willing to do anything about it and that kind of sounds like what hell is it, it there's not images of you being tortured for eternity but you know also it seems to be you will feel sick and hungry a lot so there's just like in general dissatisfaction but not torture or anything like that and I think there's plenty of people who will fall into that you know until Ragnarok where they're sort of reborn and the whole um, destroying of the nine worlds and then those nine worlds being reborn but I, I have always thought that hell is just a place you go where you're just an average person who doesn't have really a lot of motivation to do anything else. And you're one of the people who just exist. And there's plenty of people in the world who just exist. They don't do anything bad. They don't do anything good. Um, it, it, it's not like unethical to be one of those people. I don't think that's what you should be going for. But it's not like you're doing something wrong. Necessar well, I mean, there are arguments. There's that whole... Was it Kant? There's that whole argument that you have a duty to yourself, and if you are able to do great things that make the world a better place, you have a moral obligation to do so because you can. But like, I don't know if that, I don't know if that argument is really valid. Um, but but regardless, this is for the people who have kind of just never cared and continue to never care in the afterlife, and you know they're kind of just stuck with existing and nothing more than existing really until Ragnarok and that's where people that's what that's the people who go to hell uh, I think there's a lot of people who die of sickness or old age who are not that who can go to different halls not Valhalla because you have to die in battle to go to Valhalla but there's there's other places there's Gladsheim's and 
I mean, there's the rest of Asgard. There's traveling the world tree in general. There's all sorts of other afterlives you can go to. So I don't think you necessarily go to hell if you don't die in battle. Um, I think it's just for the people who are kind of just content with existing. Dazer brought up the wolf at home, and it was only Tyr who had the courage to approach the wolf and give it food. And when the gods saw how and when the gods saw how much it was growing each day, and all prophecies foretold that it was destined to cause them harm, then the Aesir adopted this plan. And they made a very strong fetter, which they called Lighting, and brought it to the wolf and support wolf and suggested he should try his strength with the feather with the fetter. Alright, so this is a very famous store story when they bind the wolf. And I think I think this one just happens in this version of the Edda. The wolf decided that it was not beyond its strength and let them do what they wished with it. At the first kick that the wolf made at it, this fetter broke. Thus he loosed himself from lighting. Next, the Azer made a second fetter, twice as strong, which they called Dromi, and asked a wolf again to try this feather, this fetter, and declared that he would achieve great fame for his strength if such mighty pieces of engineering could not hold him. The wolf thought to himself that this fetter was very strong, but also that his strength had grown since he broke lighting. It occurred to him that they it occurred to him that he would have to take some risks if he was to achieve fame, and allowed the fetter to be put on him, and when the Aesir declared that they were ready, the wolf shook himself and knocked the fetter on the ground and strained hard, kicking with his feet. Broke the fetter so that the fragments flew far away. Then he struck himself out of Dromi. Since then, it has been used as a saying to loose from lighting or strike out of droming, dromi when something is achieved with great effort. Uh, like we don't say that anymore, but I guess they used to, which is a cool sign. Loose from lighting, especially. It's got the like alliteration to it. Um... After this, the Aesir began to fear that they would not manage to get the wolf bound. Then Allfather sent someone called Skirnir, Frey's messenger, down into the world of Black Elves to some dwarves and, ha and had a fetter called Glepnir made. Uh, I feel like Skirnir, Frey's messenger, comes up a lot. It was made of six ingredients. The, so the sound of the cat's foot... Wait, I'm going to start over. It was made of six ingredients, the sound of the cat's footfalls and the woman's beard, the mountain's root and the bear's sinews, and the fish's breath, breath and bird's spittle. And even if you did not know this information before, you can now discover true proofs that you are not being deceived in the following. You must have seen that a woman has no beard, and there is no noise from a cat's running, and there are no roots under a mountain. And I declare now, by my faith, that everything I have told you is just as true, even if there are some things that you cannot test. Then spoke Anglary. I can indeed see that this is true. I can understand the things that you have given as proofs. But what was the feather, what was the feather made like? Alright, so, um, I, I always like when it says, like, the fetter's made of cat's foot steps, and he's like, and you can tell, because there are no sound the cat's foot steps make. Um, uh, but I think the important thing about this fetter is it's made uh, by the dwarves and magically, and that will come up 
here in a second. Hi, said. I can easily tell you that. The fetter was smooth and soft like a silken ribbon, but as firm and strong as you shall now hear. When the fetter was brought to the Aesir, they thanked the messenger heartily for carrying out their errand. Then the Aesir went on the lake called Amsvartnir, onto an island called Lingvi, and summoned with them the wolf, showed him the silky band, and bade him tear it, and declared it was rather firmer than seemed likely, judging from its thickness, and passed it to each other, and tried it by pulling at it with their hands, and it did not tear. Yet the wolf, they said, would tear it. Then the wolf replied, It looks to me, with this ribbon, as though I will gain no fame from it if I do tear apart such a slender band. But if it is made with art and trickery, then even if it does look thin, this band is not going on my legs. Then the Azir said, that he would soon tear apart a slender silken band, seeing that he had earlier broken great iron fetters. But if you cannot manage to tear this band, then, then you will present no terror to the gods, and so we will free you. The wolf said, If you bind me so that I am unable to release myself, then you will be standing by in such a way that I should have to wait a long time before I got any help from you. I'm reluctant, I am reluctant to have this band put on me. But rather than that, you question my courage. Let someone put his faith, put his hand in my mouth as a pledge that this is done in good faith. All right, so, um, again, because the wolf doesn't want them to say that he's scared and question his courage, they ask someone to put a hand in their mouth. And obviously, when he doesn't break free, then... That person's going to lose their hand. But all the Aesir looked at each other and found themselves in a dilemma, and all refused to, to offer their hand until Tyr put forward his right hand and put in the wolf's mouth. And now when the wolf kicked and the band, the band grew harder, and the harder he struggled, the tougher became the band. Then they all laughed, except for Tyr. He lost his hand. When the Aesir saw that the wolf was thoroughly bound, they took the cord that was hanging from the fetter, which is called Geld and threaded it through a great stone slab, this is called Gyol, and fastened the slab far down in the ground. Then they took a great rock and thrust it even further into the ground, this is called the Veti, and used this rock as an anchoring peg. The wolf stretched its jaws enormously and reacted violently and tried to bite them. They thrust into its mouth a certain sword. The hilt touches its lower gums and the point its upper ones. This is its gum prop. It howls horribly, and saliva runs from its mouth. This forms the river called Hope. That it will lie, or there it will lie, until Ragnarok. Okay, now we're going to stop there, because... It's uh, about that time. Um... I like that story. That's a famous story, and I think I've talked about that story a number of times. But one of the things that I always like to say is they bind the wolf, and then the wolf struggles and struggles. And then when it sees it can't break free, snaps off Tyr's hand. And in my mind, Tyr put his hand in, and they bound the wolf. It seems like he could have just pulled his hand out really quickly if he wanted to. But that would not be... 
the honorable thing to do. He said that he would leave his hand in the mouth as a pledge of good faith. So he, you know, waits until the wolf struggles and has a chance to bite off his hand. Also, it said that he puts his right hand in, the, in his mouth. Another thing he could have done is be like, well, I'll do my left hand because if I'm going to lose one, I might as well lose my non-dominant hand. I don't want to lose my sword hand. But again, he doesn't do that. He puts in his right hand. So I think this story tells us a lot about Tyr and the fact that he's willing to sacrifice for his people and do the honorable thing by making that sacrifice and not try to get out of it some way because there's a few instances where he could have tried to get out of his fate um, and he didn't. In other places in the lore we see Loki try to get out of the promises he's made. Famously when he's dealing with the dwarves that end up getting Thor Mjolnir, his hammer, he says like, oh well the dwarves said they could have my head but I never said they could have my neck with in an attempt to not let the dwarves cut off his head, which is kind of what he promised. And then there's a whole thing where they sew up his mouth and, instead. But what I'm saying is we see in the lore where people like Loki will try to get out of the deals that they've made, where here, Tyr volunteers his right hand instead of trying to do his non-dominant hand and get out of it. And then I feel like it's obvious that the wolf would have to have some amount of time struggling and Tyr does not quickly pull his hand out of his mouth. And then, you know, in some stories, when you try to get out of what you uh, signed up for, generally speaking, you, it, the bad thing still happens, but not always. But he didn't do that. He didn't try to pull his hand out real quick. He just accepted the he accepted the consequences of his action. And I think that's a cool, honorable thing about Thor, or about Tyr, which is um, kind of the character of Tyr, that he is willing to make these sacrifices and do the honorable thing. So uh, that's it for today. We'll pick up there next time, which will be sometime or the other next month. Uh, I do want to thank everybody for listening. Hopefully you got something out of it. The Binding of Fenris is always one of my favorite stories um and it's definitely one i suggest you read just like pick up a copy of this ad as i think there's a link in the show notes to the sacred text version and like read through that story because that's that's just a great story and deserves a little bit of time for you know you to read it in its entirety and think about it a little bit it's it's less than a page long so uh yeah i really like that story so Again, thank you everyone else. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, remember, if you want to go to my webpage, you can hugenhoff.org. That's h-u-g-i-n-h-o-f.org, and you can grab the RSS for the podcast, which I suggest because I upload this thing around the first of month, the month, but it's it's rarely on the very first day. So if you just put in the RSS, it will pop into your podcast player of choice. Whenever it's ready, you'll get your notification and then you can watch it. So, yeah, check that out. And thank you very much for listening. And I will talk to you next month. Fra hail.